Hello, my name is Tyler Town, and I will be having a conversation with Sarah Rowley for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 23rd, 2018, and this is being recorded at my apartment in Sunset Park. So, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, including your age, your gender pronouns. How would you describe your gender? Um, elusive and expensive. Um, my pronouns are she, hers. Uh, what I know about myself is that I am non-binary. Um, it started out just being aware that there were certain ways in which I was never going to pass my height and my voice and um, kind of an unwillingness to go too hard into vocal training and eventually I realized that this is more of an identity thing rather than simply I am binary and I just don't pass in these ways. It's actually, you no, know, these are part of my identity and I'm, I'm able to embrace them. And um, So I say... When I go into detail, I say both that I am a non-binary trans femme queer and I'm also a woman. And it makes, it's fortunate that I don't have any dysphoria surrounding any of that so that when I tell the cis, oh, well, I'm a woman, I'm not just like, ugh, you know. Um, so I'm she, hers, non-binary. And I'm 34 years old. I'm an 83 model. Um, came out the same year as Guesses 9125 and <laughs> Jedi or, and uh, Star Wars Return of the Jedi. So Very cool. Kind of mediocre movie and trying to have not a mediocre life here so you know some things work for me and some things work against <laughs> so tell me about the earliest memory or one of your earlier memories that you can remember connected to my gender your childhood no oh. just your just a general memory earliest i want to say i was three and i was in someone's bedroom i remember we lived in a duplex and I think I was in like my parents' bedroom. Someone was in the adjoining bathroom having a shower, and I remember like I think I think of like like everyone was. I was just like waking up. I remember sleeping in bed with my parents a lot back then, um, and I remember imitating the sound of the shower to my brother, just like like I just like walking up to him, being like, "You have to experience this thing," you know. That's one of my earliest memories. So you grew up with a brother. Yes. Um, what was your childhood like? Pro, uh, prone to profound change without warning. Um, my dad, I would find out later. All, all I knew was that he would like show up and be very like blustery and very angry and very shouty. Um, and that was profoundly unsettling for me as a kid. He... Um, uh, he was a meth user and uh, my mother was not so it was just like kind of like Jekyll and Hyde my parents marriage with my dad would um, do like the breadwinning thing he would play biker bars by night and by day he would be a carpet cleaner um, now with meth this meant that he was basically pushing himself too hard constantly so I grew up thinking that hernias were just something that fathers got um, at age four um, he became connected with some uh, pretty, like, like committed, heavily devoted Christian people. Not necessarily re religious conservative types. Um, but 
uh, some people who were very serious about what they did and um, with them he had some kind of experience that took him away from the meth at the same time this was the late 80s and a devoted you know scholarly spirituality was something that was not going to be able to retain his attention um, so he ended up drifting into the religious conservatism that was kind of in the air supply at the time um, so suddenly our family was Christian and um, my dad has always been a very well-read person so he speaks whether or not he really intends to he speaks with what people perceive as authority and certainly my brother and I went along with it um, not knowing any better I was like well this guy seems to know what he's talking about now so um, so there would be it's funny his his religiosity and his rigidity were very it was a very consistent theme up until I was 17 but the consequences of that would vary so wildly from month to month remember there was one year that was actually that actually felt okay um, and that was when I was six I had already had a couple experiences which showed me that I wasn't masculine at the same time the reaction that I got when I would let it out was so painful to me that what I took away from it was that this thing is so not right that it doesn't even merit a sermon from my dad you know I would fuck up in, in one way or another and in addition to getting grounded or spanked or whatever I'd get what felt like a three hour diatribe on why this is a thing that you don't do and you know based on these verses and this is important for you to know and when it came to gender nonconformance what I got was a smack across the head and a dirty look like this thing is so profoundly not right that there are no words to describe it. Just never do it. Um, so I took what I took from that was that this thing must be hidden and everything associated with it must be hidden and everything associated with everything associated with it must be hidden. So, um, and that process kind of started around when I was six, but I wasn't really aware of it until maybe eight years old when I just realized, why does it seem like there's only like 5% of me? Like I didn't have the vocabulary to describe that back then, but that was the impression that I had of myself. And I didn't really start to go away until around, I think, 27, 28, when I first really started to explore my own femininity. So you were six years old when you first started showing signs of gender nonconformity uh, when i started intentionally acting it out um, we'd be having a conversation i'd say just not necessarily to like make a joke or anything but just i'd say i'd do something very feminine and that would provoke that reaction there were times before i remember there was a memory from age four my mom my brother and i both had these stuffed animals i had winnie the pooh and he had a baby mickey mouse and those were like those were like our favorites um, and our mom staged a little uh, tea party for the four of us and um, she took a picture of us and like my brother's sitting there with his Mickey Mouse and I'm sitting there with my Amy Poop. I'm not just sitting there. I'm like extra like. Mm -hmm. And I look at that picture now and that's like one of the, like the, that's the only picture of myself from before. Oh, maybe my late 20s that where I don't feel dysphoric looking at it. Um, and my parents had no idea until I told them. Um trying to think of what that was an answer to well it was i was just interested in the you mentioned that you had 
instances of, yeah. of gender nonconformity. Those, yeah. And I'm interested in what that meant to your father, what that meant to your family, because it seems like... That's where I was going to go next. Yeah. Um, my dad, like I mentioned, he was a meth addict, and um, throughout my childhood, uh, when he converted, one of the things he did was got out of both of those lines of work and went into being a pharmacy tech. He was an addict, and he was a very good worker, um, which meant um, there were a few years there where he was like sober, um, although he did sneak a lot of alcohol, but then when he started uh, just taking extra pain meds and stuff like that, and that escalated, he eventually got into recovery um, in 2000. I was 17. Um, and he took his... He, there's, there's a lot of internal work that you do. Um, it's one of the lesser toxic aspects of that culture. Um, and one of the things we didn't know what we were talking about at the time, what he was talking about. And I didn't know the importance of it. Then I was still very heavily compartmentalized myself. I am a pretty intelligent kid and the elegance of those barriers and their thickness and power still floors me to this day. But, um, what he had to say was that he would see me behave these ways and what he felt was fear of what would happen to me. And he saw it as his, because he was always a kind of a geeky kid himself. I suspect he may have some gender nonconformance, but he hasn't said it yet. So I don't make any more of a call than that, but he did behave in ways that were different and he got his ass kicked for it by his brothers, by his fathers, by, by his dad, by his school friends, by teachers and uh, he grew up in a Catholic school, so, you know, the, it was very, you know, the nuns and all that kind of shit. So he saw that, you know, kind of persecution as something to protect me from. And he didn't know that there was anything to unpack about what I was expressing. All he knew was that it was a magnet for trouble, that he saw it as being his responsibility to protect me from. And his the work he was doing in recovery at that point was thorough to such a degree that he was able to recognize that as harmful before I even had any thought of like, you know, Hey, why did you do that? Because that kind of fucked me up a little bit. Um, I mean, there was, that was one small thing in a whole context of both abuse and neglect that I'm still working on unpacking enough to be able to have close relationships that last a long time without my projecting that shit onto them. Um, thanks dad. But no, uh, <laughs> My mom didn't see my brother and I for anything we were. She um, had been raped and didn't seek any help for it. Um, she got drunk immediately after and um, kind of walked away from the situations with these latent PTSD triggers sitting around inside her. It was around when I was like eight or nine when that started to become a thing between my parents. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what was going on. And um, she's not a very sexual person herself, even outside the existence of that trauma. Uh, my dad, on the other hand, was you know had had a very strong sexual appetite, and so that would create a lot of conflict between the two of them. My mom soaked up a lot of what I would now term white feminism um, that was prevalent in the '90s, um, and she also she had picked up some sort of. I don't know how, how it got to her, but basically the second wave feminism that was very much in the ambient noise of the 1970s. So she took this thing that masculine people are automatically rapists. Um, and there is no way for them to seek their satisfaction without putting women in danger. Now there's a lot of truth to that. And I was prepared to, um, 
understand consent culture when it started to really hit the ground. Um, once I realized that, wait a second, there was a reason that my mom behaved this way and it wasn't just because she needed help she didn't get, it's because there's this whole wider context and that would become even more and more salient to me as I, as I transitioned. But, um, so my dad was afraid for me because he knew I would be persecuted for it. My mom was afraid of like everything. <laughs> um, so basically it was these two people who saw this thing, barely recognized it for what it was, but, but saw it as profoundly radioactive. And, um, in addition to the other ways that they really tried to make our childhood, whatever it was that they thought that needed to be, um, there was this sense that I needed to have this, that, that I needed to somehow become something that would not leave room for this to metastasize. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course I never made any progress in that direction. I managed to kind of wall everything off and then the bit of me that was left over just really had no interest in doing anything else than just, you know, digesting geek content and, uh, <laughs> and being obsessed with spaceships and shit. <clears throat> that was a humongous Trek and Star Wars fan growing up. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your brother. <clears throat> oh, very normative. Um, he was two, he was a year and a half younger than me on the June baby. He was January the following year. Um, so he's uh, 18 months away from me. And between the two of us, he was actually the one with the spine. He was the shot caller. He was, people would assume, you know, our, they, they, we never looked anything alike anyways, but, um, people are surprised they're not only were we siblings, um, but also that he was the younger one because I was just kind of sitting there waiting for instructions. Whereas he was just like, okay, here's what needs to happen. This and this and this. Um, I, I lived, um, dependent on him and his fiance for some years, um, in my adulthood. And it was actually after moving out on my own or after having moved out on my own for a few years that I started to actually make some coherent contact with my gender um and the life that i have and the life that i cultivate now is very separated from his entire world um and we have yet to really have an opportunity to try to like get any like substantial bond kind of formed over that separation um having come out and having faced some of my family's cluelessness has made me very distrusting of all but like a handful of people. I have two socially aware cousins. One of them lives in Portland of all places. The other one lives in Utah. And then I have an aunt who was always like me at a point to be kind of there for me. Um, my immediate family cares, but everyone's kind of doing their own thing and nobody's quite aware of the effect of their behavior, including myself sometimes. Um, although like my mom's been in a position to help me all that kind of stuff. So, but when it came to my brother, he's very privileged. Um, he's very privileged socially because he has that kind of automatic backbone, that kind of thing that makes people be like, Oh, well he, he, he knows what to do. Um, and he is kind of, he's kind of the person to feather his own nest and create this environment around him where there's really not going to be anything happening that he didn't see coming and be able to plan for and be able to expect. And when you get into a conversation with him, there's just not going to be any conversation in an, up, in an area where he doesn't have full expertise. 
Um, it just, it's just not, the conversation just can't get pulled in direction other than what he's prepared to like, be like, yep, this is exactly what that is. So here I am, this testament to human mystery. And I don't know if he knows it or not, but I would have to see a display from him of some significant open-minded and open-heartedness before I tried to tell him anything because all I, because all I know to brace myself for is, Oh, actually, that's not true because blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, okay, James, tell me tell me about my gender, you know? Tell me about, you know, tell me about the, the, the lack of an actual gender binary. Tell me about privilege and persecution and, you know, a lifetime of psychological warfare and how, and, 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 and intersectional realities that you don't even fucking face in your life, you know? Um I'm still working on parsing out where my distrust of my families are from my own vendettas against them as a child who was abused. Um, and my parents, nobody got out of, got out of that situation unscathed. <laughs> but um, how much of it is just that, oh, you abused me, so I don't like you on that basis. Um, and how much of it is, okay, you knew what you were doing or you knew you had an opportunity to do something decent and you chose not to, you know? Um, so that's a little bit about that. <laughs> so outside of your family, um, who would you say <clears throat> are people that have had an impact on your life? Most important people, positive impacts? Let me think here. I didn't really have someone who like I consciously kind of was inclined to latch on to until much after my childhood in my childhood there were a couple people we had this neighbor across the street her name was Joan Sanford and she um I guess I would describe her as a liberal now but at the time she was like like our fundy household like you know I, I mentioned I was a huge Trek fan well I got so enthused by it that my and you know, geeks back then were not a thing people were allowed to be. And my dad thought it might be some like demonic thing. And so he, you know, got, you know, he was like, oh yeah, you know, G. Broadbury says like this evil person and all this kind of stuff. And just basically got me going on this like whole like line of like, okay, why this thing must be discredited, you know, as a religious person. And I remember talking with my neighbor about this thing my dad was trying to do with me. And she was like, so how is he bad? You know, because I mean, there are these ways that, you know, this material is flawed and everything like that, but like bad. And she helped to cultivate a chink in that armor that let me know that as frustrating as it was, because I wanted so much to be what my parents seemed to need me to be, including, you know, subservient to all these things. Um, and here she was. giving me this glance of this wider reality outside of everything that I thought my world needed to be made of. And it seemed bewildering and it seemed, you know, distinctly if unclearly threatening to me. Um, but that it was there and it was something that a mature, well-rounded person will be expected to have some dealing with. 
And how old were you when you had this experience? Um, when I, um, she was around mostly in my early like junior high years. That's another thing, though. Uh, my brother and I were uh, homeschooled for most of our childhoods. Okay. I was in grade school from kindergarten until fifth grade, and um, before Christmas break of fifth grade, my parents pulled my brother and I both out of school. Part of it was fundy stuff. Part of it, the major part of it, though, was just that um, neither of us got along with other kids. Um, I wanted so much to be liked that I was easily taken advantage of both by people who wanted me, wanted to like get me to do stuff that, um, would get them in trouble and others who just enjoyed kicking someone around. Um, I've, uh, like a lot of nineties kids, I, I, I got into South Park pretty heavily. Butters is a hard character to watch for me because that was my, that was my thing. Um, so in junior high, in lieu of dealing with junior high shit, which I don't know what I would have turned into had I had to deal with that environment back then. Um, but yeah, it it was mostly isolation and getting into getting into being a geek. Really, it was after I was homeschooling that I was able to actually have any clarity of just what I seemed to find interesting and what seemed to be compelling to me that I could be like. Actually, I'm interested. Let's watch this movie. Ooh, I like this about this thing and this thing and this thing. Um, she was. It was. It was around that time. She. Um, she would take my brother and I to go see movies. I remember I think the first one we saw was uh, if it was Men in Black or Air Force One. But my parents were at that point were just like, okay, well, they're you know they're early teenagers or whatever. I mean, well, here's this you know responsible adult that'll like take mom and do stuff. So why not? Um, at the same time, I don't know if they knew of or influenced as a person who encouraged us to question these things, um, or if they did and just didn't see it as harmful because she wasn't out there to be one of them liberals, but she totally fucking was. And it was a very, um, as, as much as I trash liberalism now, um, she was an extraordinarily positive influence and I wish I could find her these days just to be like, by the way, <laughs> those couple of conversations that I'm sure you walked away from being like, I did not get through to them. You did. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I learned to chase that from this universe of apparent certainty that was just going to be what my life was about. Well, actually, there's this little bit here that we can't quite figure out at all. Like try to quantify it and you've gone out to infinite decimal places and yeah. So she was an enormous influence. I had a youth pastor who was, um, it was funny. My dad was like all right wing and everything. And my, and, and the, the religious community we had around us was at least compatible with that. Um, and certainly had anti-queer bigotry sitting around. And God damn, the, the prevalence of sexual abuse in Christian homes was something that like, it was right there. But it seems coded in what a Douglas Adams refers to as the somebody else's problem field, like a cloaking device, which just tells your brain that, oh, well, this someone else is going to take care of this. We'd go to like these, you know, church camps over the summer and they'd have like their big altar call night where everybody kind of spills their guts. So, you, and you have like just this long procession of girls, all of whom are being molested by their fathers, who they're about to go home to. Wow. Uh, interviewee is gesticulating wildly towards her face. <laughs> <laughs> An explosive shrug. Anyways, um, <laughs> I remember in the middle, in the midst of all this stuff, he 
provided a very stable just person to be around to talk to about stuff. And yeah, he was like kind of in on the Christian, you know, over-religious, you know, kind of stuff. But only to a certain degree, he wanted people to kind of not get too pulled apart by all the stuff going on. And I'd be another person. I'd be very eager to, to kind of seek out and be like, "So tell me about this and this and this," because um, I'm part of what came out of this. And so, yeah, yes. In Citrus, in 1990s Citrus Heights, I keep thinking back. I mean, how different might my life have been if I had actually tried to claim this back then? I probably would have wound up homeless. I probably would have wound up being one of those kids who the family just knows them as oh, the angry one. Um, and they certainly know that, know me as that now, but, uh, yeah, anyways, that's another influence. Um, I didn't really have any, like, people that I really consciously saw as like, wow, that person really impresses me and I want to be more like them or find out whatever that is and explore that more until I was like 19. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your late teens, early twenties. Oh, who you hung out with, if you partied with anyone. Nope. <laughs> nope, not at all. My mom was a was a was a was a pig up in Reading for like a couple of months back in the late seventies. She was a dispatcher and then this thing came through where you had to have so many women on your force, so she was offered the job and just like, sure, I'll take it. Up in Reading, there wasn't exactly a whole lot of, you know, legitimate piggy work. Um, just, you know, some rapist would, you know, serially kidnap a bunch of kids, and then the police were the ones that had to deal with it. So that was the fucked up shit she saw, and of course, after a couple of months of it, she was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and that was her impression of the outside, the world outside our mobile home. So we would want to go hang out with, you know, our buddy who just learned, in the youth group, who just learned to drive, and like, he was like, the kind of guy who liked to go rocking at the river for like most of the day like oh yeah let's do that and she'd be like oh well someone's gonna catch you and your body's not gonna be found for you know a couple of weeks you know what happens to a person's body when it isn't found for a couple of weeks you know yeah so that basically takes care of my hanging out and partying thing um, at the same time i'm glad i didn't find drugs back then because <laughs> they totally would have turned into what they turn into from a lot of us but um I did, let me see, another early memory from age four, this has relevance later on, was uh, finding my dad's porn stash, and that was, I, 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 that led me straight to my own eroticism, and I kept trying to, like, explore that, but it seemed to want to go somewhere, it didn't seem to know how, and I got the sex ed lecture from my parents in two doses, the first one was the mechanics, this goes into this, makes a baby, and then the second part was, okay, fluids, lots of fluids, fluids coming from everywhere, fluids coming from you at some point, because you got this thing, and this thing, and... You're going to wake up one day and be stuck to your mattress. You're not going to know why. This is why. And don't worry. It's what's, it's not broken. And um, that was when I was 13. And then, yeah, one night when I was 14, I was tucking, actually. And that took me over the edge. Um, and, of course, because that wasn't how it had been described to me, I was just like, okay, surely I've broken it. And then after a couple of days of, like, not saying anything to anyone and being scared, I'm just like, let's see if we can make it happen again. <laughs> Lo and behold, I found, I found – and, and that was – and as much as I still see a lot of my life through a recovery lens, and it was like, that was definitely my first drug because holy shit, here was some way to not be in these shitty fucking moments, at least for a little while. Mm-hmm. But, um, there was that, there was, uh, there was my first real subversive act was getting the password to my parents' computer and then learning how to counteract the parental controls. Ooh. 
Oh yeah, because yeah, we had the di- we had that dial-up shit going on. I remember the first time I typed in "nude" into a search engine and got something. I'm just like, because yeah, all you have to do is type "sex" in Notepad, and then Net Nanny, that was the software my parents had, would lock onto that, and then, like, I don't know why they didn't expect that the kid would just okay, Alt Tab back to the browser window, and then just do whatever. So not only you know, not only was the thing locked onto the Notepad, which wasn't doing anything, but that was the only thing it was recording from. So now here I am looking at basically a bunch of shit. Oh my god. Trying so hard not to laugh. Oh, we lived in this mobile home and the family room where the computer was was kind of in the middle of everything. Bedrooms went down one way, living room, kitchen were down the other side, and my parents were down at the far end. My brother and I were right close to the family room. So um, when someone was stirring or about to come out, the floor would creak. So those sounds, like I've been staying at my mom's for the last couple of weeks off and on as I was preparing to move out here to New York. And um, so when she moved around, I was just like, oh my God, I remember trying to turn the computer like off and, you know, you know, trying to like, you know, if I printed out anything, you know, send it, you know, put it away or whatever. Um, Cause not only could, could they not know that we were looking at porn, but also that we had cracked their password. Someone, I don't know how Ruth, no, we extrapolated that afterwards. We knew it was a four-letter word that started with B. And we were like, boat? Boat? Maybe boat. Now, my parents were two, you know, of course, Christian Bible geeks. So, um, and, and they, they dropped a hint that it was related to my dad's work password. And so I'm just like, Boaz? Because we did the Bible study things too, and we knew that Boaz was Ruth's guy. And once we realized that Boaz was a thing, it's like, oh, well, if we never need to get into dad's, you know, computer at work, obviously it's Ruth. So, but I remember when we found that, and I didn't know that that was like what, for what little it meant at, no, it meant the fucking world at the time. It meant I could explore my geekdom without, you know, you know, not only when they said it was okay. I don't know what kind of discipline I kind of like screwed myself out of at that point, but I, I depend on my passion to keep me going. And I'm, you know, at that point I was passionate about modded, you know, Star Wars Dark Forces levels. That was a, that was a Star Wars game where it was like a sprite shooter, kind of like Doom, but just Star Wars and people modded the fuck out of it. It was brilliant. But, um, That was, that was one of the, it, that all kind of happened in the same year when I was 14. And also, um, I allowed myself to explore a sexual attraction to my brother's best friend, Sean. Um, at the time I thought that was gay, of course, and you're not supposed to be gay. At the same time, I think about doing this. I think about doing that when I was playing with myself and that was hot. So eventually we started doing truth or dare which is basically sexual exploration with complete deniability because, you know, what, fuck it, whatever. But actually, like, we're doing this very sexual stuff in the living room. And, oh, it was... Yeah. So Christmas came around that year. And I remember that being the first time that Christmas ever came around and I did not feel that childlike joy. And I remember feeling, like, I'm pretty sure it was just because due to puberty, my emotional range had expanded beyond what that childhood sense was like. Um, and I didn't know how to invest in it any further. All I knew was that, okay, here's Christmas. And then here's like this whole reality around this thing that kind of renders this thing a little bit paltry. And I didn't know what to make of it. But of course, the moral, the moralizing, um, the internalized moralism and everything kind of told me, oh, well, it's because you're doing this and this and this and this wrong that you can't enjoy this anymore. So this is what it means to be a bad person. And were you still religious at this time? Did you I have- tried so hard to be. Mm-hmm. 
um, because it was obviously part of what was expected of me. But I could never get into the Bible the way I was into the search for Spock. I could never get into it the way, you know, God, it never became more pronounced than when uh, episode one came out. And, of course, the nature of religious abuse totally spoke to that, too, because the prequels are at least as badly put together as the Bible. So, <laughs> But you're supposed to believe it's just, you know, the thing. You know, it's the thing that, that's, you know, just at the top of everything. Um, I tried to be. I remember one time when I was 16 and my dad's addiction was really taking out. Because by this point, he had been, he had gotten, like, really deep into, like, pharmaceutical opioids, as they call them now. Um and uh, and there's like this constant undercurrent of conflict just waiting to explode into something. And for me, the authoritarian child that I was, if my dad yelled at me or if I was in trouble, it never occurred to me to assume that they want stupid things from me as parents to child. Mm-hmm. They could be what I saw was that they couldn't possibly be wrong about any of this stuff. So obviously, if they're angry with me, if they're displeased with me, whatever problem they have is totally legitimate. Um, not just that, you know, they're, they're, they only know how to train me to be a, a, a as little burdensome a charge and chattel as possible. Um, I didn't see any of that. I just saw that, you know. So anyways, all of that stuff was happening way too much around, around when I was 16. And... Um, I remember going to church camp that summer and I really, 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 really tried to have a religious experience because that's the thing that turns it all around, right? And, um, yeah, it lasted a couple weeks and then I was masturbating again. And, yeah, my dad, he understood what we understand now as patriarchal rape culture. Um, He didn't understand it as such back then. He just knew that you could be way too sexually interested in the world around you and that would cause problems for people. He backed that up entirely biblically and I'm pretty sure Paul was both um, homo-romantic and asexual because <laughs> um, he hated gayness and sex was like this evil thing that the world would try to push on you which is totally an ace thing to see. Um, but at the same time it turned into like the pattern for religion and if you've controlled, a per- if you've got a person to hand over control of their sexuality to another person you literally have them um and so there we keep having these things happen over and over again where like you know some evidence of the fact that i was having a sex life with myself would like you know my mom's victorious secrets get found under the bed or someone would look at the internet history and our we wouldn't have covered our tracks all that well so it'd be like this thing with lots of prayer and lots of like you know policing Honestly, and I want, again, this was all stuff that I like wanted to try to do right by my parents because obviously they knew what was best, not, no, I'm queer and sex positivity is a thing that's important and nobody in Citrus Heights in 1997 was going to know this. Um, That was very much most of my childhood, the sense that here are these things that I know I need, but I can't validate that need because my parents get to say what's valid and what's not and because of my pursuing what i need i'm constantly waiting for the hammer to come down and get everything grounded away or whatever and you mentioned having a sexual attraction or allowing yourself to yes have a sexual attraction um i've i've always been primarily femme attracted um 
And I don't know what it was about Sean, but uh, yeah, we started doing the truth or dare thing. Um, neither of us really knew about oral sex. Neither of us knew about butt fucking. We knew that pe- that gay dudes did butt fuck, so we like dared the other to do it. And like, there was no prep or anything. He tried to he tried to fuck me, and he stopped, of course. Um, and I just remember sitting there for like a good like ten minutes after being like, "Can it stop hurting?" <laughs> right. Um, then eventually this was like leading up to New Year's 2000, um, we were doing another overnight and we'd gotten started doing, we started like, you know, playing with this idea of a contest basically where we're both masturbating in front of each other and whoever comes first wins or something. I, that's my part's not really that important other than just that it happens, obviously. Um, finally we got around to it and we're not interrupted and, uh, he I think I came first, but I was on the floor. I was like a, I was this belly lying presser at the time. And of course he was standing up and stroking and, uh, I came over myself. He came on me. And for some reason that like made it so like real and freaky. And like, it was, of course, you know, in a testicular body after orgasm, you get this wash of prolactin, which basically turns all of the sexual interest stuff off. And so literally this hot shit that just happened is just now just this, weird sticky stuff on your hand and uh what, what, what is this right this is this is this is wrong of course so, okay yeah after that point we used to like even like you know talk shit to each other about whatever happened last at truth or something like that after this experience nothing and i remember running into him some years later and um we we're just kind of talking we we're just kind of talking about everything smash brothers and all this shit we used to do and i remember like kind of kind of nudging it a little t- towards that way and he acted like he had no memory of it at all. I'm just like, okay, I'll respect that, but still, honey. <laughs> I wonder what, I, I often think back now and be like, what would it be like if I, if he knew he was doing this with a girl the entire time? So, I'm actually going to let silence happen because mm-hmm. Michelle told me I'm allowed to do that and she's allowed to cut this out. So, okay. <laughs> um, doing you're doing so well thank you so how did you first learn about or encounter other trans or gender non-conforming people it was aside from a little like my mom of course had daytime tv all the time so you had ricky lake you had more poba she had jerry springer you had this place where transgender people would be, but it would be for the purpose of characterization. Um, Look at these freaks. Don't be like this. Um, So that was just a complete non-starter. And also the first uh, PG-rated movie I ever saw was Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, And then the next one I saw was Ace Ventura Pet Detective. (laughs) And it sucks because the humor in these movies are spectacular and the transphobia is so deeply baked into them and i'm sure that robin williams would probably be hip to it i'm damn sure jim carrey would be like yeah that was a very different time we did not know what we were saying but um again it went into that area that people like joan sanford had kind of carved out this chink in the armor where it's like okay here's what you're supposed to see here's what you're supposed to want to be and then here's this whole other reality out there that on one hand you're not supposed to accept because no one knows how to deal with it, and you're going to be punished for it at the same time. You've got to have some answer for it. Um, and 
and for a long time my answer was cis-normative, you know, speculation from the outside. Well, you know, if a person is transgender, then they must this must be true about them or whatever. They say don't look down when you're like on a high thing. And I always have this sense now being openly trans that I'm on this really high ladder and then looking back at like these prejudices I used to have that were just commonplace to me as as water from a faucet and looking at it and seeing like this enormous distance between where I am now and where I am back then. Part of me is just like almost to go back and pop in through like a time portal and be like, it's okay, you're gonna get so far far the fuck away from all of this. Everything around you is wrong and it's okay that you have doubt about it and I can't see much longer. I'm risking a rift just by appearing here in the first place. Anyways, um, kink scene. I got involved with the kink scene in uh, 2010. 2010, that's right. I had been introduced to it um, in 2005 by a woman I was involved with for a couple of years. But that was like her thing. All that, you know, the whips and chains and shit. Um, I had... And I, I, I was exposed to it, and I and I accepted it, and I, and I welcomed it. And something, like, I remember saying, telling people at the time, it's just like, I felt, you know, if anything can be the presence of God, I felt it more at the sex club than I did at any church, you know? Um, but at the same time, it was like this big, hard-to-understand world that I knew would be work that I wasn't ready to start doing yet. And it was when I started dating in, in earnest in, in 2010... Um, that I realized um, it started out as a I'm going to find the wife I'm going to find the wife, I'm going to have the kid and I'm going to be normal and it's going to be so good I'm not going to want to go to any of this weird shit and then the first person I really made a connection with she was sexually non-monogamous um, she would she was she, she, um, she's able to make a sexually monogamous commitment when she entered a monogamous relationship and until then she had her appetite and these were the ways that she meant it here's how she takes care of her um that she takes care of her sexual health. This is where consent is and everything like that. And to me, that was just like, like half of me wants to see you as like, Oh, witch, and the other part wants to be like, does fly. It does leave the ground and then stay there. And then when it's time to come back down, it comes back down. Wow. Um, six months later when we got involved, I had been around the kink scene enough that I was like, I want to be Polly. I want to do this. I want to do this. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I was exposed to was um, very openly and very non-binary presenting trans people. And I learned initially this, that they were very scary and um, I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know like, I didn't know that it's only a small portion of trans people who become dysphoric when you ask them what their pronouns are. They do exist, but I used to think that because those people exist, then obviously there's, it's just this impossible to approach thing. And I, I don't know how these people ever expect to have rights or anything. Yeah. Um, that was 2010, a year later in 2011, I, with a group of friends that I'd made a best friend within that year and a half. Um, and he and I had become super close by the, over the course of that year between 2010 and 2011 and 2011, we're going to this goth club, this goth thing back in uh, San Francisco called, uh, uh, Death Guild at the DNA Lounge. And they basically play really good music, and it's a very dance-centric space. So Sacramento had some, like, goth industrial things, but it's like, okay, here's the floor, and then here's where all the people are going to be hanging out, drinking, smoking, and talking about how shitty people they are. Go out to San Francisco, it's the exact opposite. Everyone is out there to explore and make space with something inside themselves and inside each other. 
and it's more heavy than heavy. It, while being dark and black and too shiny and too abrasive and, you know, the emptiness inside, you know. And it was one of the most safe spaces I'd ever been in in my life. Um, so the first time I go there, right, I'm expecting good music, I'm expecting some dancing, all kind of stuff, and there's a whole thing with dancing, and it's an enormous importance in my life leading up to this, but we won't have to be another interview, I guess. But um, I went there, and I was wearing black slacks, I was wearing this oversized Serenity t-shirt, and I was wearing a Trilby. It was 2010, or it was 2011, I didn't know what a, everyone calls it a flipped fedora. it's the one with the short brim, you know? Um, it's the one that edgelords wear. Um, it didn't really mean that back then. It was certainly not how I meant it, but I remember, yeah, it's like, there I was. I'm checking you out. I'm a lady. Um, so that's what I was wearing. And I go in and I'm just like, okay, cool. Yeah, nice music and everything. And then maybe about 15 minutes, I was just like, yeah, you know, I hadn't really had that much stamina for years at that point. So, like, we step out, and, like, the people I'm with, they've all got their booze and their bongs in the back of the cars. At, at that point, I was, uh, I'd been in recovery for a while, so I was completely absent. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Do your thing. And I had this idea while we were out there, and I was like, what if I, like, had my shirt up? So, like, I was showing a bunch of midriff, and as though I was concealing breasts. So, I'm like, so I had a friend do, like, one of those, like, 90s midriffs knots where the whole thing kind of knots up on one side of you. And then I rolled up this the slacks so they turned into kind of, like, baggy militaristic capris. And I just threw the fucking hat away. And I went back in. And I don't know what possessed me to be her. But that's what happened then and there. I want to find the date for it. Um, it was a weekend. I had worked an eight-hour sh shift right before going out, and I was going to work another one the next day. And it was in the middle of all this exhaustion and over-caffeination and sleep deprivation that I found this for the first time. And it was like I found the other 90% of myself. And I knew it was humongous, and I knew it was going to shape my life whether I wanted to or not. But at that point, I still felt like I had some control over it. So what I did was that I, I never went to that. I went to that dance repeatedly over and over and over again. And I never once presented masculine there, <laughs> even long before I came out as trans, um, even to myself. Um, and it was the combination of people who were very, who wanted to be as woke as they possibly could. Um, given the rapidly emerging, you know, insight. I mean, Tumblr was just really starting to turn into the thing that it was turning into, at least as far as, you know, Citrus Heights and Sacramento were concerned. Mills U, who fucking knew. They were probably 10 years ahead of us, but that's Mills U. Um, here was this place where I knew, while people might not know what to do with it, they would know to not make fun of it, and they would know to avoid what we now would know as exploitative behavior. Be like, oh, well, come here, baby. And I was just, no, not like that at all. This is something else, and this is something worth letting the, this person explore. And um, I called myself gender fluid. And gender fluidity is a, you know, is, is, a, is, is another valid um, trans identity. And it was very not what I was doing. What I was doing was very much controlling my expressing my femininity. Um, 
and then using this gender fluid man identity as like some kind of like tie back to normalcy. Um, although at the time I remember thinking it's like God, who knows in six months I might be going on hormones or something like that. This was years before, but any case, um, that was that was how that, that that was that was how I first really discovered it. There had been times every now and then before where like there would be some kind of femininity and I would kind of wake up in it, but I'd always kind of put it back down until then. Great. Yep. <laughs> well, I think uh, we're gonna take our break right about now, and uh, we'll be back. So we're back from our break. Um, Sarah, you mentioned recovery, so why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Okay. Um, well, as I'd mentioned, my dad, um, had his history of chemical dependency. I never really had a chance to have one myself because I wasn't in school, um, and the ages when death starts to become commonplace. I was never going to, like, look for it because I certainly got all the whole drugs or bad speech from every direction, including my own dad. Um, but yeah. He, when I was four, he entered the church and in a couple of, within a couple of years after that, it changed from doing, you know, carpet cleaning and um, playing biker bars. He uh, got into a pharmacy technician work and um, he got a very steady job and it was, you know, well-paying by, you know, those kind of, by their kind of standards for kind of our lower class home. But um, he, uh, he stayed, he, he wasn't using for a couple of years as far as like illegal drugs were concerned. He was, he was sneaking alcohol every now and then. I guess that went up or down. But in any case, he eventually had a back injury and then a kidney stone. And between all the prescriptions there, he was connected with um, opioids, which he hadn't been into before. He didn't know it was a thing. Well, suddenly this was like a thing. And here he was working in this place. So he became his own hookup. Um, he did it in very large amounts and he just kept escalating and escalating and escalating. Now, when a few Vicodin would disappear back in those days, if you were good enough at your job, they wouldn't do anything about it as long as you, you know, kind of stayed in your lane with it, or at least didn't get so, it, it was easy for them to write off, um, even though it wasn't, was against the rules. Well, what happened was that he started getting into things like Delouded, which are like highly federally controlled. So when some of it goes missing, like it doesn't go into the waste thing. Like even the stuff you throw away gets accounted for and like, there it is. Um, well, suddenly when that stuff starts disappearing, they immediately got inquiries and um, uh, randomly invited him to take two weeks vacation, which was what they needed so that the private investigator could get his you know equipment mounted and everything like that so they could continue their investigation well he comes back from vac from vacation and of course he's out so he's got to like resupply so he's like you know filling up his little pill bottle full kind of thing here and there and they're in the stuffing in his left sock knock 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 it's the, it's this person private investigator matt riley what's in your left sock it was over um he so they arrested him and um he had been in recovery once before um, he'd gone to a couple NA meetings, uh, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, to appease my mom and made this whole show of, oh, I'm getting better or whatever. And he wasn't fooling anybody in there, but we didn't, there wasn't really any, we didn't like know any his recovery friends. So, um, any case, now he was in trouble. Sorry, I just <clears throat> think that, um, you might be picking up your hands. Oh, just a right, bit. right. That's all. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this time he got arrested, like actually got in some shit, and um, 
they were stacking up a pretty large case against him due to the amounts he was stealing. It wouldn't be until some time later when they got the toxicology report back, they just realized he was profoundly fucked up. So they, um, they gave him a wristband or ankle, the ankle monitor and, um, you know, uh, necessitated, you know, recovery and certain therapy and all that kind of stuff. Um, he took, he took to it right away as far as what I could see. Um, he himself would say that he didn't really get serious about it until some months in, but like, as far as I knew, I started to know my father starting in September of 2000. Um, and so something, some community, some social force, something that could turn my dad from basically Darth Vader, just not as impressive into this person who I could know, um, who I could understand and about whom my understanding could illuminate things about myself, you know, um, just this whole dimension to existing as a human. I just had no reason to even really be into it for, even though that's apparently what like movies and shit were about aside from, you know, spaceship battles. Um, <laughs> I didn't know why I cared about them, but it was all that. But anyways, um, that was my introduction to recovery was that impact. And, um, within the first month I started going to meetings along with them. And I was just really impressed by this authenticity because here were these things that for all intents and purposes would be like some church get together, but I didn't feel in church what I felt in these spaces. Um, now they were very white. They were very neurotypical normative and they're super hetero and cis normative. Um, like there was one gay guy and it was like, oh, see how enlightened we are. We have a gay guy. This group, this group is 90 people fucking thick. And there's that, <laughs> but we don't say that, that we say that word. But anyways, you say nothing of the couple people that like some, some very care intensive, um, neurodivergent people who didn't have care and like part of us expected that they would become normal as they, whatever. Yeah, um, but still, it was miles above anything I'd been involved with before, and it seemed to give some narrative stability to my understanding of my life in this environment. Um, I wanted to belong, and so my dad got into it in 2000. Um, 2002, I'm still living with my parents. I have no direction in life. Although I'm starting to get into music, but I'm barely like acknowledging that to myself even. Um, so important, I can't even look at it directly. Um, one of those first people who I really recognize as a positive influence had been into and then out of my life. I was going to school and I met, I was going to college and I met this girl. Um, she was uh, She was a manager in the theater department. And I was taking this audio recording class. Well, there, the professor, the instructor for it was the engineer for the school as well. So they'd do a thing and, and he'd be like, hey, you know, if you want to make extra credits, I'm going to come here and hand microphones around in a, in a live gig. You know, it's going to be a packed house and there's going to be a lot of pressure, and a lot of responsibility, you know, come in here and do this thing. And I had just such a fucking wonderful time. It was some Broadway review and there are parts of me that still feel allergic to musical theater. And then like the rest of me is just waiting until that time when it's time for me to just dive in head first because there's so much there. 
But anyways, it was a great experience, and I, I met this girl, and she was also a homeschooler. I was like, wow, so we started talking about that, you know, kind of the weirdness of, you know, parents and, you know, the, the isolation and then, like, the communities within homeschooling. And um, I didn't, wouldn't realize until long after, but she had a very different experience homeschooling. Her parents were legitimately supportive, minimally abusive and neglectful, and she actually got a very good preparation for the life that she was moving into. Um and she was, like, self-actualized to a degree that I didn't know people were. They seemed to be in movies and stuff. I thought they just did that because that's the easier person to, like, paint a story about, you know? No, here's, like, this person. And I, once I realized the enormous difference between us, I froze. Like, at any point, she was going to realize how pathetic I was and how terrible my background is and how damningly not cool I am. And she was going to leave me and I was going to deserve it. So I froze, and after, like, a couple weeks of, like, seeing this interesting person just kind of disappear in front of her, even though they were there, she was just like, this isn't working for me, I'm sorry, and I was just devastated, because I, like, had no idea, I knew there was no way I had of keeping this person around the way I had intended by dating her, but, yeah, I was devastated by the, the losses, I didn't run into people like this. These weren't, this, this wasn't who you found in, you know, one and a half story tall Citrus Heights and Carmichael, these areas of Sacramento where I was from that were, the mentality of which was just ubiquitous to me. That's why I'm attracted to cities. I mean, even if someone's just kind of doing their little life, it's all surrounded by enormity and it's so dramatic and it's so vibrant. It's almost traumatizing how vibrant it is. And she was a window into that and I wanted more of that and, um, I knew that I was going to have to leave my comfort zone and the closest way I knew of at the time, the same thing that seemed to be knocking down my door was smoking some pot, you know? Um, now you didn't have dispensaries or anything like that. You had somebody who kind of knew somebody and you were going to kind of try to act like you weren't feeling guilty about it, even though you totally fucking were. And this was like, you know, the edgy, because that was apparently my crowd, you know, working at Carl's Jr. and shit. Um, yeah. So it, I didn't really experience much of anything that I valued about the pot. At the same time, there I was going off res for the very first time in my life. Really, like, here's this thing, like, drugs are bad. And, like, that was the one thing that my dad's involvement with recovery did was drugs are fucking bad. And here I am just doing it. Um, I was still living with my parents, and I had no means or plans to leave anytime soon. And I was doing this thing that I wasn't supposed to. Well, I stopped, and I came clean about it, and I went into recovery. And most of this was an effort to try to imbue my life with some structure and I, it didn't work but I did manage to uh, move out of my parents house in with my brother um, and um, I had no coping skills and how old were you at the time? 19 oh I was 20 when I moved out that's right 19 when I met Megan that was her name Megan Lehman I'm pretty sure she's married now but um I, uh, yeah, moved out when I was 20, started driving, yeah, I got my own car, and it was because my grandma had one that she gave me for like $500, but I started going on road trips and finding how much I love travel and finding how much I love the Bay. Well, here was this opportunity to live a little bit closer to downtown Sacramento, and I took it, and it was, um, I had no time for anything. The job barely paid enough to cover expenses, and I did, at this point, I can look back at that and be like, this is what it's like to walk into the millennial economy, even though this was back in 2003. It would already, <clears throat> it was already going to this point where, yeah, any entry-level job, you're not going to be able to afford to live. Um, 
this real quick. Oh, take some time. Um, I think. coping skills and I tried to get into a relationship with this one girl I tried to do these other things and um, basically I got a bunch of emotional crap all over myself and nothing really washed that off until um, I had decided to leave recovery and this was like me really going off rose here I was no safety I'm not living with my parents none of that shit it's just me and whoever I'm around at the time whoever, whatever friends I have at that point and here I was leaving recovery, this place that was that, that was the standard for safety and stability. Um, I had some pretty valuable experiences in that phase. I uh, took hallucinogens, I took shrooms, which brought me out of a depression and showed me that happiness was a thing I kind of stripped down for rather than dress up for in terms of my intellectual involvement. It wants to take things apart and it wants to understand things and at that point especially from a very colonialist very ableist perspective so of course it's a fucking gigantic buzzkill come to find out that you know happiness and fun are a thing yeah you're vulnerable for and i was able to start to i had insights from that thing i couldn't put into words but it was definitely what led to that whole exploration um also i got into robitussin and um I had my first overdose on any drugs ever. It was on Robitussin, and that was intense. And I went back to the next weekend because it was fun. It was anything better than you know living as a person with CPTSD and no treatment and no understanding of why everything is just fucking hard for you all the time. Um, that was in 2004. I was 21. And I remember right before Christmas, my roommate and I um, did ecstasy. For the first and so far in my time in my life, the only time I may do it again, but it'll be like with babysitting and a lot of like microdosing and shit. But I took it, and at that time, it completely won me over because here was the sense, you know, what I needed so much so much of in my life was some authentic connection, and it happened only by accident back then, like once or twice a year, not even close to enough for me. And I knew that maybe I could get to a place where I could seek it out actively and experience it more often and be able to do whatever it is people do with that kind of connection. Um, and this is just like friends and relationships and colleagues and it could happen fucking anywhere. Well, here's this drug that could make me feel like it was happening no matter where I was at or what I was doing. When I was on Robitussin, you have to navigate that high. You could fall into a black hole and then suddenly you're having this terrible fucking trip with ecstasy. You sit there and you feel good. And whoever you're talking to, it could be someone that you've known your whole life, it could be someone that you just met an hour ago. You would feel like you knew them your whole life and you two just had so much history and so much to relate to. And um, I wanted... I wanted to feel that and I wanted to have it again. And I knew that if I kept ecstasy on the table, that was all I was going to do. So I went back into recovery and, um, I really made it, I'd experienced some darkness and some light in that, in those months between leaving recovery and coming back to it. And somehow I was able to keep some kind of hold on myself and what I wanted. Um, cause it, what always happened before is that I'd, get around someone who seemed to know what they were talking about and, you know, get sponsored and mentored basically by them. And, uh, whatever it was they would have me do or try to have me become, it just never 
it never felt good. And um, it was always boring. And it was always, there was just nothing there for me to eat emotionally, internally, spiritually. And um, I was able to keep a sense of integrity about myself while at the same time still continuing to hide some of the most important things from myself as I always had. And just not knowing that I had. <laughs> Spending most of your life as 5% of a person and not knowing why. And you're the one who put that put the brick walls in place. Um, so that was when I got back into recovery. And actually, I did a bunch of work in there. And I made a lot of like moves over the years. And that was where I've had most of my adult life so far. Um, until about a year or so ago. It was about a year now when I decided I'm not going to go to meetings and I'm going to start like not just consider counting myself among this community. Um, I got into a place where I just could not see the ableism. I could not see the normalized capitalistic abuse and how like, oh, you're supposed to be honest and genuine and authentic with yourself in these ways. But not in these ways, not in that I know that, okay, here is this society and this culture and this economy that literally eats people. Um, and it comes on a, in this long and bloody, disgusting context of human, you know, we, you, we refer to like savage, the savages, quotes unquote, is the cannibals. And it's like, actually, no, we're, we, we do and we have been eating people alive this entire fucking time. And we celebrate ourselves for it and... There was no, I, I remember finding a Facebook group, leftists in recovery. No one seemed to know what the hell to do. And there are only a couple of who would like in the clear admit that, yeah, that's a hell of a reconciliation to try to perform. This awareness that you have about the world around you that you can't hide yourself from um, at your own peril. And then this other thing that says, well, this and this and this and this has to be okay. Otherwise, you don't get to do the whole contributing member to society thing. You, you know, you, you fucking freeloader, you know, looking for a handout, you know. Um, I can't tell if that's the most that I never made that kind of going off reservation move, but it's definitely up there. And um, I find I sealed the deal by starting smoking pot this last summer. And at that point, for years, I had been like, you know, accepting of other people's pot use initially. I was just like, well, let's see if they're, you know, showing addict behavior. And to come to find out that a person who uses drugs of any kind. And an addict are two very different things. Now, if I'm going to hang around the heroin users, probably going to see a lot more of that that, that kind of behavior around there. But when it comes to pot, especially in this society where it's understood as a medication, even when it's used recreationally, it's a medicinal use. Um, I had a lot of people, I had a lot of other people in recovery who felt that way about pot as well. They wouldn't count, we wouldn't count it for ourselves. It was, for other people, yeah, actually, we should take away all that stigma because there's a lot of hypocrisy hiding inside it. But even then, that wasn't nearly far enough. But one thing I knew by that summer was that most queers I knew smoked pot. And the couple that didn't, and the, and the handful even inside that number who, um, who were also in recovery, had nothing that I wanted. These were assimilationists. These were people talking shit about the protesters like everybody else. Um, these were the people who, you know, 
there were that they were what I would eventually learn was true scum. You know, they were you know there were there were valid ways of being trans and invalid ways of being trans. They really just really hold things up for the rest of us. Um, and I didn't fucking want any of that. And I wasn't gonna at that point. I'd stopped requiring myself to be the one to bridge that gap. I was actually like, you know what? Yeah, I could spend a whole life trying to reconcile that kind of problematics with the kind of recovery that I need to continue to justify my showing up here still and contributing to this community. Um, but yeah, at that point I'd really become aware of how persecuting society is beyond just, you know, just a little kind of microaggressions you get. There's something you can expect from just about everybody who's cis. And there are contexts in which it's going to be menacing and you have to deal with that somehow. And there are going to be times when it's just, you know, innocent but frustrating infinitely and you have to deal with that somehow. And this community through which I had come to take a lot of my emotional processing through was suddenly no longer a facility I had. You know, at the same time, I had, I had cultivated strong, close personal friendships, but none of them was what they would have considered a you know legitimate sponsor. Um, but at the same time, I was learning, I was growing, and I tried it, and I loved it. And I loved the fact that it kind of changes the tempo emotionally of whatever it is I'm going through. It's been indispensable with that DoorDash, with the DoorDash work that I've been doing. Um, the last job that I've done regularly, still it gets to be too much, overwhelming. So I'd have a couple puffs off a joint. And if I needed to have feelings, I would have my feelings. And the rest of the time, I'd put on some music that makes me happy. And I would be able to inhabit that happiness and not constantly have, oh, yeah, but life is still shit for you, playing on in the background. I don't understand the assumed ethics of depriving a person of that escape. Um, and I've never seen any of the excesses that are, that, that, that are, that people try to be like, oh, well, if you're going to do pop and this is what's, this is what's going to come to. And it's like, actually not really. Um, it isn't laziness and it certainly isn't, you know, you know, yippies, you know? So that's kind of my hope that expresses in some way the essence of my of my involvement of recovery's role in my life. It's been very important at this point. It's another just another panel in this humongous wall of shit that I'm rocketing away from at top speed. <laughs> it's interesting. You mentioned um, the that that you started to notice more people leaning on uh, drugs as coping mechanisms within the trans and queer community yes um it was exclusively so in fact i mean if i hadn't changed my attitude on pot use i don't know if i would have felt as safe initially around the trans community because of it wow um i've seen people that are kind of stuck but there are a lot of reasons for that. And again, that's one of the things they say about pot is this, well, you know, if you're smoke pot all the time, you lose all direction in your life and wind up nowhere. And it's like, actually, there's a million fucking reasons we wind up nowhere. Even if we're cis, even if we're fucking straight and neurotypical, there are things that get us stuck in life. And you know what? This isn't the cause. This is something that helps you get through that shit without losing your mind, without becoming so emotionally voracious that you just gobble people up around you left and right. And not to say that pot presents that necessarily, but believe me, getting through that minefield without becoming a more problematic person, this is something that helps with that. 
and yeah um and when it comes to dealing with the pressures that we experience as queer people as non and certainly in my face non non-passing queer person it's indispensable yeah so why don't we talk about hmm. New York City yeah and your relation to it um let's start with what made you choose New York City um it was a city and there was a and I had a friend here with the place I could be it could have just as easily have been Las Vegas or Los Angeles or Miami or uh Houston or Dallas is the better place in New York for people who aren't bigots, but whatever place. It could have been any one of these places, um, and I would have gone. Um, if I would have preferred it have been San Francisco, of course, I have my whole life back in California. At the same time, New York was floated in front of me, and I I could think offhand, uh, like literally every 34-year-old woman I know who would have absolutely no reason to pick up and leap across a continent to try to start a life somewhere else. I am not one of those women. I have every fucking reason to try and do that. Um, between the internet and if I do okay financially, I'll be able to fly back every now and then and see people. But I need to survive. And I was barely treading water out there. And if I'm going to be barely treading water in a place, I'd rather be stuck in a place as alive as new york and it, you know what i've seen here in the what, eight eight and a half days that i've been here so far has not disappointed and i know that i've just barely encountered the city so far so what are some of the differences that you've noticed it's hilly it's it snows um although i'm told like this like this last blizzard was kind of like a freak thing and probably this is gonna be the last bit of the snow I see until until the year's over, half over. Which is sad because oh, it doesn't snow in Citrus Heights. I got to live in Germany for a little while. It was a light snow year then, but I remember one night I was out when it suddenly started and it's 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 an it's its own intoxication. And then the streets all brown and shit like that for the next couple of days. That's always interesting. But anyways, that's just the snow. I think I mentioned um, before, it's big and it's a big world in a way that doesn't let you forget it. And where I come from, everything is built kind of short. And there's, of course, exceptions to that, but just there's always this sense that there's no bigger world outside than the end of the next intersection. Um, and the enormity of lives and what all that means for what's possible seems something that like literally is so people are so unaware of it back where I come from that it may as well not be true. And that's part of the sense I had to push back against living there and living close to there was that like everything my life is about, everything my life is about exploring and encountering and discovering and experiencing is actually just kind of like, Oh, whatever, you know, uh, you know, are you working? Are you able to are you able to make enough money to, to live on, you know? Um, like that is somehow where life begins and ends. I just this is so not that. 
And while at the same time, yeah, you better have some fucking money if you're going to go get, get from anywhere to anywhere and do anything. But it's not small and it's not still and quiet. And I don't know if I want that because that's how my personality is or I want that because of trauma, but I want that and it's here and I have to really try hard to be um, deadened by it. I can be discouraged by it. I've experienced something like that the last couple of days with an uptick in my depression, but it's breathtaking as life is and as life is it gets kind of censored out of life in smaller places. That's part of what I like about it. Ask me again in six months, I imagine that won't have changed, but it's equally possible that it does. <laughs> I know how young I am in some ways. So have there been any negative differences? Um, I don't know if it'd be different than Sacramento. Um, like I had this guy kiss me last week. Uh, he was uh, it was at one of those falafel stands, and I don't know. He was saying something I couldn't understand it, and but he seemed very like complimentary to me. So I'm like, oh, thanks. And then yeah, right before I go, he plants three fucking like serious kisses on my lips, and I was just like, oh, okay, whatever. And within like initially, I was just like, oh, well, whatever. I'm gonna eat my food now. By the time I got home an hour later, I I I couldn't even finish eating the food. I was that pissed off. And it was less about his behavior than it was the fact that I just had such a non-reaction to it online. It's possible that I compensate for my passiveness in person online. Um, but I don't know that that wouldn't have happened in Sacramento. Probably in San Francisco, but... Um, I know that I probably wouldn't have, like, I would have been a lot more standoffish, but I'm out here and I kind of know that I need to be seen for whatever, um, or at least my default is a place of, you know, I should probably let myself be seen for, for who I am and what I am and involved. Um, and I'm learning through, and I'm going to be continue to learn through experiences like that, um, where not to, why, um, so I really hope I learned to navigate the frustration better, but um, shit like that. Um, I think I mentioned before, uh, the, the stare is different, and I didn't explain what I meant to you by that, but um, I get a lot of stares from cisgender people. They look me, they look at me in the face, and then they look down at my groin usually, then back up, usually dipping past my breasts. And here, they lock eyes. They're just like, and... On one hand, yeah, it's like, wow, there's there's some transphobia right there. At the same time, I'm glad that that's there rather than next moment they're, they seem to have gone on with their day, which is what you get out on the West Coast constantly. No one wants to be caught appearing queerphobic, as, even though they are. Um, whereas out here, um, that layer of subterfuge seems to be pretty gone, or at least I'm reading it differently. But it's a welcome change. Um, I have less trouble dealing with that than I have dealing with the other thing. Why do you think that is? I hate having to fight the sense that I'm imagining it. Most, literally most of my life and most of what I struggle with has to do with me insisting that, no, this thing is real, this thing is happening. 
I'm seeing what I'm seeing. And that in resistance to this force of, oh, well, that's just totally normal. Or, you know, you're just supposed to just kind of get by with that. You're not supposed to like really worry about it or let yourself be affected by it. Don't let yourself be affected by it. Don't let yourself be affected by these things because people choose to be, you know, depressed and traumatized. People choose to be anxious and they choose to like need to, you know, tap their feet or fidget with something with their hands. And if you just choose to be you know, more normal, you'll have an easier time of it in the world because you'll deserve it because you've tried to be more normal. This is progress for me. I used to um, have this kind of level of distress when dealing with like a Jesus freak because I know that circular logic and I know how impenetrable it is. I remember I had a cousin who got it, who's, who's been into that shit for most of his adult life and I hadn't seen him since he went off to, you know, college and all that kind of stuff. Well, he comes back to this fucking brainwashed Jesus freak and I'm trying to have this conversation with him as someone who understands a little bit of my my religious abuse growing up and everything and finding that there's no communicating any of this to him because he's in this circle and I remember I didn't sleep that night I didn't expect that I was that troubled by it but I didn't sleep that night and all I could think about was there must be some way in and there isn't and because this thing's been refining itself for 2,000 years but yeah um, transphobia and ableism go at least deeper than that if not further back in history and the ways that we're cultivated to invalidate ourselves to get by was one of those things that I completely consumed to the core of me and have been gradually picking apart you know kind of reaching all the way through the esophagus into the stomach where this thing sits and has sat for over a decade and just kind of like, okay oh that piece is off it now great let's reach back out without breaking anything with it and okay um meanwhile at the same time it's like oh yeah but also you know submit to the pressures of working full-time and and if you don't you're a bum it's that was all in response to something like a question that you asked me, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> well, we were speaking about New York and what yeah. was different, and what was dis- uh, some of the nature of the of the distress I face as a queer and a neurodivergent. Yeah. yeah, cool. And actually, you you have br- you've brought up um, uh, neurodivergency in general. Yes. Um, or neurodivergence, right, I think, right, right. in general. Um, but I don't think we've asked, I've asked you directly about um, being neurodivergent and how you feel about that. Right. And how you feel that about your intersection with being a queer trans person. I don't know why it's ubiquitous, but it seems I, I don't really know any trans people who are not neuro, who are not neurodivergent. Um, whether it's a chronic mental illness or whether it is, is some kind of autism um, or usually for everyone I know it's like a mixture of the two and the mental illness isn't necessarily caused by anything other than just either neurochemistry or our abuse. Um, I like the idea of a future with a bunch of, you know, neurodivergent careers just kind of rolling around all over the place being our weird selves and not paying for it with, you know, having all these things that we have to like do to take care of ourselves and all these things that we can't do and all these connections we can't show up for because it requires us to do something that where wounded emotional tissue is. Um, but no, me, I am autistic. I am ADHD. I have ADHD. I have depression. 
Um, it might, some other kind of disorder may exist in there. Um, I have very, I get very inconsistent care. And uh, my last thing was to do hormones and to get on to Wellbutrin, which I have since gone off because I couldn't afford it. And um, I couldn't keep getting the prescriptions from a doctor I was no longer seeing. Um, oh, there's so much to talk about there. Um, when I got into recovery this last time where I stayed clean for like over a decade, um, in my first year, I also went in for psychiatric care. And at the time I thought I was bipolar or had some kind of depression going on. And uh, what I was diagnosed with was actually ADHD. And, um, he came to the diagnosis after like five minutes of talking with me. Um, I was, I had a lot of, of course, prejudice about ADD at that point. And I thought that he, that like, he was like fundamentally calling me stupid or something. And well, he had me do some reading on it, you know, check this out, check this out, see if, how these insights feel, you know, does this line up with your experience? Um, and I ended up concluding that, yeah, it does actually. And um, so we went on, we went on Ritalin and I learned how to think taking that drug. I didn't know how to like start a thought and then cultivate it and insulate it and then kind of gradually let it grow legs and move around on its own and then finish um, until I started taking that medication and I got good. I started getting seriously good at music. I was seriously getting good at graphics. I was able to concentrate on things and keep an agenda going. And, and how old were you when this happened? That was 22 when I, when I was in recovery that first year. Um, I took it for a few years and um, somehow it, it just became more of a hyper-focusing agent. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was able to function intellectually without it. Um, and that same year where I did, um, where I started like dating and got into the kink scene, all that kind of stuff. Also that year was opened with me going, uh, weaning off of Ritalin and actually going through it with very little unpleasantness. And of course I knew, noticed all the ADHD feelings and everything being around again, but I was able to still function in the middle of it. Um, Part of me was like, oh yeah, get away from big pharma and all that, whatever. And the other part of me was like, well, this drug actually isn't doing the stuff I needed to anymore. And I was, I was pleased that I just, you know, there was no one who had to have the big come to Jesus talk of, well, you should do this thing because of these reasons. It was me who arrived at that decision. It was me who conducted all the action on it. And that's something that at that point in my life, I didn't have much of a history of doing. Um, as far as autism goes, where that and my ADHD separate themselves, especially as a kid, I can't tell. I just notice that it's a lot of work for me to navigate social situations and it isn't from an anxiety thing. It's just there are some ways in which I fail to uh, receive information that's sitting right in front of me. Um, and if I take certain measures, if I allow myself, if I give myself room for these limits, um, I actually function pretty darn good. Um, these were all things that I kept expecting would change about me, even up to the time when I started transition. And as I, um, as that continued to go forward and these things did not change about me, there were one of two ways to look at it. One was, well, despite everything I've done for the past 34 years, I still need to find the way to become normal or what all these SJWs have been talking about is true on this thing as well as gender, as well as rape culture, as well as blackness and color in America, as well as with capitalism, that a lot of us have a lot more different about us than we're 
encouraged to even explore and I have that myself and I need to start finding out what those things are concretely rather than just simply knowing on a habitual level what seems to work for me and what doesn't um it's been revolutionary and at the same time part of me has still got the finger over the hand over the you know self-destruct button on this whole process because basically what I'm doing is by old standards is not requiring enough of myself um and this is how life comes to a screeching halt. And you know what? The evidence for that is not <laughs> insubstantial. That case has has exhibits to trot out in front of a jury and make its whole fucking dietary about. And that's going in my head constantly. At the same time, I've still been on this planet for 34 and a half years. And these are things about me that have not changed. And... I have weakly tried to do something about it. I've tried to change it with every bit of strength that I could muster and it has not moved. And, you know, I have other things I want to do with my life. Um, but yeah, it's very openly and very proudly that I'm like, I'm autistic. I have ADHD, I have depression. And there are as yet undiagnosed things about me. And like, I haven't even received an official diagnosis for, uh, for autism particularly, but... I don't trust them and and they will have to earn my trust when it comes to trying to cope with these aspects of my existence medically um you know our society like right now there's the whole you know autism awareness you know thing and people are having to be like okay so you know now like progress is everybody who knows speaking out about autism speaks and being like these people don't represent us they're about fixing us they're about training us to fit in with neurotypicals at any cost no matter how much it mangles us for life don't support these people whereas like a year ago this would have seemed like too much to advocate this loudly for it you know um I like that I get to be a part of that. And I like that I, um, I like that more and more of the morality and expectation of people that I was raised with is not just wrong, but I'm able to walk away from it. That's wonderful. Thank you. So you mentioned that, um, getting your ADHD diagnosis and treatment actually helped you focus more on your music. Yes. Um, up to that point, just like connection, music happened accidentally. It, I'd made enough time for it so that it happened accidentally fairly frequently. And as I went through a few different phases in life, phases where there was just no activity, phases where there was a lot of change, and phases where there was a lot of like, you know, where it's a little bit of success, and then phases where there's like depression and loneliness and heartbreak. And watching how my relationship to music creation changed throughout all those different things and how on one hand yeah it's cathartic to do on the other hand it's if, if i need to like if i need to beat the ground with something and scream at the top of my lungs sitting down in a daw is not going to accomplish that <laughs> um ritalin there's a track on my soundcloud there's actually a whole album on my soundcloud it's the earliest one called learning to greeble which is a reference to my graphics work at the time. I've always been about, you know, sci-fi stuff. And Greeble is how they add, like, 
indistinct or non-distinct uh, detail to the surface of something. A Star Destroyer, all that chunky shit along the side. Like, obviously it's not an engine, it's not where they're going to rotoscope the lasers coming out of, but it's just there and it looks makes it look legit. That's Greeble. Laborious to do in 3D, but at the same time super rewarding when you get good at it. And I got myself good at it over the course of that year. There's a track in there near the end called Taskmaster, and it was the first track I ever made when I was on Ritalin. And literally, I had a couple like ideas of, oh, I could like program this sequence in and do it with this sound and do it with this melody and then kind of get that going. That could be fun. So I go in and I sit down and I do it. And just that first hours of activity of get everything set up and get everything running and playing the sequences properly. That was with the clarity that I had never experienced before. I'm like, and I'm still enjoying this. I'm still on the same emotional wavelength that I was at when I had the idea. This is cool. Okay. So... I sat down and I did the whole thing that I do with tracks, which is set up a few different iterations of, you know, maybe four or eight bars and set up a couple things that do in various lengths, uh, sophisticate the, uh, the, the percussion a little bit. And then once I have, once I'm getting it to a thing where I'm not adding anything or programming anything, I'm just kind of cutting things in and out. That's when I know I have it. And that's where I know it starts sequencing actually the, the order of the song and how everything kind of comes in, does what it does, goes out, animates and all that kind of stuff. And, I think it was like three hours later, I've got this track and I can literally draw a straight line through both my thoughts and my feelings back to when I had the idea three hours ago. And I was just like, is this what it's like to just function? You know? And of course I have, you know, pieces of music since then. It's like literally some I'm still writing that I started back in 2007. But, um, music was always that language and that magic that I always wanted to learn how to wield. Um, the first piece of music I ever understood at age four was uh, The Gates of Delirium by Yes. It's a 21 minute um, rock symphony about, uh, it's inspired by Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, which I've never read. I tried to and it was impenetrable, but the story in the music was, there's this troubled peace which erupts into war. The war is won by one side and lost by the other and no matter where you stand afterwards, there's just all this destruction afterwards and it's necessary and it's never going to not be what it is. And at the same time, it is still so sad and there's still so much grief to experience with it. And all of this whole fucking gamut was expressed that. And I understood that at age four, I couldn't get, ex I was never the kid who could get excited about MC hammer and new kids on the block because of these experiences that I had with a lot of stuff like this. Um, I didn't have a band. I couldn't play guitar and I wasn't a keyboardist. Um, and I, and I done drums. I done a little bit of keyboard playing when I was younger in my church and everything, but I never got like skilled the way Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman is skilled. Um, but I did center in on keyboards because that seemed to be where you write the music from. Um, if you were going to write, you know, the music and not just have words and then kind of a jam to make it kind of interesting in the background while the words happen. Um, and then there's the synthesizer itself. When I grew up in the 80s and 90s, synthesizers and electronic music at a consumer level were polysynths and um, sampling drum machines, which basically meant you had a very limited palette of sound and everybody wanted to use brass when it was time to be like excited. And uh, electric piano, that clinkly, that clinky digital electric piano sound when it was time to be emotional. And of course in church, this, you know, you know, hammer on the fucking nail head, you know, emotional vocabulary was 
literally how everything happened. So I hated it. And growing up with all this prog rock, I mean, that was driven by the synthesizer, but that kind of synthesizer was a totally different beast that just didn't exist in the mid-80s. The market had moved miles past it by that point. They were making up new versions of new ways to synthesize stuff at that point. Whereas back in the 70s, a synthesizer meant a keyboard, a short keyboard, maybe like three octaves, maybe four tops, and then a panel with a bunch of knobs and switches and buttons on them. And... I was always compelled by just, you know, this part of what got me into Star Trek was you know, all the control panels everywhere. It's like, yeah, everywhere you look, there's a different one. They all look totally different from each other. And there's like an aesthetic about it. And some look more approachable and some look more foreboding and some just look like crap. You don't want to try to use that in a crisis. And other ones are just like, wow, like glides to your hand almost. And suddenly here was like this whole reality, this whole musical reality with this type of device here. And I remember, and I didn't know it until my dad showed me. I was fourteen at that point, and um, my dad showed me a um, concert video of Yes playing "Close to the Edge" back in nineteen seventy-two. So of course, Wakeman's up there. He's got his gigantic fucking Mellotrons. That's how you got strings back in the day. And then you had um, he had, he had a few different mini mocs set to different sounds because they didn't have presets back then. You just had what you did on the board, and if you could, if like you know, a couple flick switches away. Um, if it took more than that to make a different sound, you just didn't have a different sound for the gig. And if you were rich like Wakeman, you had like three or four of them. Monstrous fucking solos and big huge filter sweeps and bass fit to just shake the ground apart and everything. And I was just like, that's incredible. And of course, by this point, the market for analog synthesis had gotten back off the ground. So a mini Moog back in 1978 or 1987 or something like that would have been like, you know, 40 bucks. Usually just uh, come down here and pick it up. I'm throwing it in the trash by the end of the day. By the time the mid-90s came around, everybody wanted one. So these things were like, move. it was never going to darken the doorsteps of my house growing up. Um, so when soft synths and DAWs, and especially freeware DAWs, started to become de rigueur in the early aughts, this was like my way to get into this world and just slowly, kind of patiently learn how to navigate it. By the time I started working on the stuff with the Ritalin, I had gotten to a place where I had at least enough command of what I was trying to do. I could hear a sound in my head. I probably wasn't going to be able to create that sound. I was going to be able to get the melody right and the timing and the chords and bass and whatever kind of percussive stuff, kind of. But like, I, you know, people would be like, oh, well, the synthesizer, you can like make any sound you can think of. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, it doesn't need to, on the other hand, but still. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen <laughs> that did not happen <laughs> um, I don't know if it was the Ritalin or just the fact that I had reached a certain point in my development as an electronic music producer after a couple of years at that point how long, how long I've been doing it um, but I got bored with making music that way and that was like the last album I made for like 10 years and yeah that album came at the end of a one, two, three, four, five, six. I think that's like the seventh album I made in two years. And those other albums previous were started with like, okay, I can string songs together to, oh my God, this thing has like an identity, like the whole thing. It isn't just, oh, here's a cool track, then here's a cool track, but like there's a story throughout. And then the last one I made before I made Learning to Greeble, and before I got into recovery basically, was one where I actually succeeded in creating like a proggy kind of sense of escalation. And like, 
Saucer and Digweed seem to kind of hint at it, but it takes a whole set to get there. Whereas, like within your, you know, within thirty minutes of my thing playing out, you're to take it on this fucking journey, and it's all the same thing. And it sounds kind of like crap because it was obviously cheap and made electronic music. At the same time, what it did with these limited tools that was, yeah, that was that was that was one of the first times when I was like, here's this thing that nobody asked me to get good at. That nobody said, hey, you should do this thing. This will be good for you for this reason, this reason, this reason. It was the exact opposite of that. People were like, why are you giving time to this thing? You need to work more hours, you know? Um, and as soon as I hit that point, of course, I wanted to go further. Um, but yeah, that was... That was very much driven at the start by Ritalin and then kind of held in place as Ritalin created these artificial points of focus, particularly with creating a Rhodes Chroma. I went from uh, doing electronic music in like a DAW with VST synthesizers to building my own VSTs. I still use that software to this day. The market has moved miles past it, but I can do fucking anything in there, even if it ties down a pretty well-powered computer just to do simple things relatively. Um... That's the other thing with music. A lot of it has been looking at expanding into this new area, whether it's artistically, performance-wise, or technologically. Initially, I'll look at it and be like, I'll try that and then be just so disturbed or be so, like, you know, yeah, disturbed by the change and by the expansion and scope of what I'm trying to do. And I'll just be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to fuck around with that. That's impossible for me. A couple years later, I'd come back to it and said that it was one of those things. Um, around the time that I got into recovery, also I wanted to try to see if I could roll up my sleeves and try to get good at the synthetic thing and found it just impossible. Well, a couple of years later, when I was really sure I was done making music that I had before, I was like, well, part of this would be being able to at least conceptualize what I want an instrument to do rather than hoping the market produces it somewhere. Um, so I got into it and my first projects were these outrageously stupid things. I was obsessed with old strings since they have a strange way the notes aren't quite separated from each other, even though you could literally hold down every note on the keyboard and have them sound. Um, and the ways that they navigated these technological limitations created a certain character that people didn't want to emulate even up until about maybe 10 years ago. People were like, you know, it's cool. Those cheesy disco string synth machines, you know, those, you know, um, I was just obsessed with it. So I went into it and I was able to get good at that. And then I was just like, well, if I'm able to get good at that, let's go for what the market really ended up going for in the late seventies. Polysense, the Prophet Fives, the, 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 the Oberheims. And then eventually like the shit that was like too well, too over-designed for people to really afford, like the, the Rhodes Chroma or something like that. No one emulates a Rhodes Chroma. Well, I found out trying to build one that in, in software, why no one really wanted to take this project on. It's like, You'll work a year getting this thing to work the way it's supposed to, and then at the end of it, what's used at the end is what you have at the end is still not exactly all that playable. <laughs> uh, it was one of the first parameter access systems. Rather than like a button and a knob or a slider for every function, you have this row of buttons and then one slider. And you, you, you want to change this aspect of the sound? Mm, okay. Then change this other aspect? Mm, all right. Laborious. And I never knew until years later after I had to scrap that project and um, I was going to one of the studios where they have a bunch of synthesizers and someone had a rose chromosome. I'm like, oh my God, there it is. And I'm like, this is impossible. <laughs> Even me, I can't, I can't hold the entire structure in my head and I need to, and you can't look at everything at once. And, ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, and I've, of course, still don't know how, whether it's pronounced true scum or trust gum. Trust gum. I don't know either. I think it's true scum. Right? But... Um, but, um, as a non-binary trans woman, what have your experiences been? Surprisingly, I have not encountered much of that kind of attention to me personally. And usually that's not their way to point you to be like, your identity is invalid. They'll do the sort of like, you know, oh, I believe this thing. And if you question them on it, but again, I haven't had, I haven't experienced that very much. The one thing I did was a friend of mine himself, a non-binary trans mask who said, I don't respect neo-pronouns and neo-pronouns being like beyond they, you've got the zeers and zems and all that kind of stuff. And me at this point, I'm willing to validate other kin on one hand, who knows? I, they, if, if, if someone not trans tries to take my space as a trans person in terms of advocacy and political space, well, I'll fucking obliterate them. At the same time, I'm not going to be like, your shit's invalid. Because, you know, they said that the same thing. They, they said the same thing to me 10 years ago. They said the same thing to me five fucking years ago. Um, in fact, they had said it so profoundly that no one had to say it at all. I just sat there on billboards, on TVs, and behind every fucking ad you ever saw, behind every fucking time you'd ever been marketed to. It was, oh, by the way, you're not supposed to be this thing. You're supposed to be this other thing. Um, so seeing this person announce that was profoundly disturbing and not disturbing, definitely unsettling, disappointing. You know, I felt, I felt betrayed. And it's like, we're all trying to get to this future and the only way we're getting there together. And this is what togetherness looks like. Not, you know, people not addressing conflicts and shit like that, but this where we don't gatekeep, we don't gatekeep. We get to defend our space and we get to hold our space and be as militaristic about that as we fucking need to be. And I go pretty darn far along that axis myself, but a cheetahkin comes up. I'm not going to tell him he's not cheetahkin. If someone with with neo pronouns goes up, I'm gonna fall over myself, and I'm gonna try my best to do what I've demanded that the cis get right. Of you know what, if you get the pronoun wrong, you say you say the right one and move the fuck along. Um. And I haven't been in those many situations yet because I haven't been around really anybody who uses neo pronouns at the same time. I'm prepared for that. I want to be prepared for that. I want to do that well. I don't want to just impress them with my wokeness or whatever i want to i want to respect them well and i haven't been prepared to for it and yeah here's this other person who himself relies upon other people's goodness and in this way has said i am not going to um i'm not going to provide that myself i'm not going to work that hard and people shouldn't ask me um that's when I've encountered it, and of course, I use. I don't block people, but I always wind up being. I always wind up being blocked by people. So yeah, I made it help room for about a good hour, and it sucked because I'm good at doing that, and at the same time, it's just I don't. Especially in a comment thread, if if it's in a mess, if it's in a private message, I'll take someone on and be like, okay, so what's going on here? I'd be like, that's really shitty, and here's some of the ramifications about it. Fuck you, block, block. Um, in a comment thread, a person has to be a made example of unless they may have couple, and usually no one does it at that point. And at the same time, I don't do this for them. I do this for the person that they're stepping on. 
I want them to see that someone's going to stand up for them, whether it's me or anybody fucking else, because I know I'm not alone in, in, the, in the kind of advocacy I do. Um, but I know what it's like to be that person to be like, someone bothers standing up for that when they don't, they don't lose a thing from it. In fact, they kind of lose a little bit by standing up for it. Okay. That's something about humanity that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't told existed ever. So that's a little bit about my, um, my flight hours with True Scum. So if there's one thing that you'd like for people to hear from you or know about you, hmm. what would it be? Jesus. Remember people asking me how I pray when I still tried to pray. It's like I'd look at the enormity of the universe and be like, I got nothing. Like, I want my car to not make a new noise, you know, but I got nothing. Um, you know, my relatives aren't being shot by the police. At the time, I um, I had a trans friend who took her own life, and that didn't happen back in those days. And by the time those, by the time that sort of thing was happening, I was in a totally different place. I feel the same way facing that question, and it might just be... It, there's a bit of vanity or pretense somewhere in there being like, oh, here I am talking to history at the same time. I don't know. I want people to be willing to think literally anything. And then just below that in priority, I, th I want people to... What's the word? uncompromisingly respect the ethical reality that, that, that they're around. Given that I've had to uproot my entire life and everything, I still don't feel like I've received any like, you know, okay, well, here's a real sacrifice. You know, um, here's a real risk for you to undertake because this is what you believe about the world. And if someone believes this, so you believe they should put this and this and this on the line. Um, and I used to let that stop me from standing up for myself. Um, I don't anymore. Because we are underprivileged. Um, when dealing with, when, when not dealing with, but when encountering a situation that involves someone less privileged than me, for example, a trans person of color, um, that's one area where I will give up. And of course, whenever there's, you know, when it comes to these intersections, I can pass for neurotypical. I should cede space to someone who doesn't when it, when, when, when their thing comes up. But at the same time, the rest of the time, you can't shut me up. And I resent that I have to be this way in order to exist. I hope that anybody listening, you shouldn't have to be remarkable in any way to survive. It's one message that gets out right now, especially in capitalism is, well, look at this queer. They had this and this and this ability that, you know, was part skill and part talent. So of course, you know, be like them and, and they'll get ahead. Um, be as catty and as bitchy as RuPaul and you'll have a whole fucking life, you know? 
um, be as good at, you know, maintaining the public's interest and disgust at the same time. And you can be successful like Caitlyn Jenner. Um, we shouldn't have to be remarkable. It's not human to be remarkable. It's human to have to be, to, to, to regard things with wonder. But what we consider remarkable right now borders on superheroic and is invariably destructive to the person doing it. Um, I hope whoever's listening to this doesn't, doesn't live in that misconception about existence. I hope there's nothing remarkable about them whatsoever, and I hope they're fucking comfortable for it. That's wonderful. Turn to the side, sip from cup. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining, Sarah. And thank Thank you so much for sharing so much about your life. Thank you for having me.